Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Mystery to Me podcast. I'm Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And we love movies and television shows with a whiff of mystery. Mystery to Me will feature us riffing on murder mysteries, film noir, cozy detective stories, police procedurals, psychological thrillers, legal dramas, tales of teen sleuths, and more. Once we're done yucking it up about whatever we've just seen, we'll serve up our five-star final takes on whether it's worth your time. If you're offended by silliness, profanity, political asides, canine-related interruptions, and losers laughing at their own bad jokes, beware. Also note that some of the stories we'll be talking about are pretty dark, and in some cases exceptionally badly written. So content warning for murder, violence, suicide, torture, rape, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and bigotry. If there's a movie or show you'd like for us to talk about, email us at mysterytomepodcast at gmail.com. Our show's take on genre is pretty loosey-goosey, so as long as your suggestion has some dash of mystery, we're interested in hearing about it. Spoiler alert! We're going to be discussing the entirety of this show or movie, spoilers and all. So if you want to be surprised, press pause, go watch the thing, then join us for the show. Now that you've heard our spiel, go ahead and polish off those magnifying glasses and slip into your favorite trench coat. Let's get mysterious. What did we watch? We watched the 1941 version of the Maltese Falcon, which was actually uh, the third version of that <laughs> film to be made. Third time's the charm. <laughs> and say. of course, we've already discussed the first two. We already discussed the first two. But since it's our anniversary. Happy anniversary. Of podcasting, not of our marriage. Uh, we figured we'd uh, review the real one that people know about and people like. <laughs> So what will we watch for the anniversary of our marriage? Maybe we could watch the shitty sequel. <laughs> Talking about the Black Bird, the George Siegel classic. Or we could keep on doing Dashiell Hammett stuff until we run out of it. It's not a huge supply of that material. Uh, well, you know, maybe we'll get, we'll get He wasn't created. the most prolific man in the world. But he's still great and we love him. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, this is the film that... Uh, sort of it's is the famous adaptation of this this uh novel by Dashiell Hammett stars of course Humphrey Bogart uh Mary Astor and uh with uh, Peter Lorre Gladys George and Sidney Greenstreet in his film debut for good measure who does Gladys George play I don't I don't recognize that name doesn't she play uh I guess there's two options she either plays the uh wife of Miles Archer or the secretary I don't think she plays Effie, does she? No, that's Lee Patrick. So Gladys George is Iva Archer. So not a huge role for Miss George. Not a huge role, but she's in there. She comes up. You thought she deserved a mention. She, she cries. So you shoehorn her She's at the top of the Wikipedia page, baby. <laughs> You're a huge fan don't of Gladys. Don't blame me. Blame the fucking Wikipedia. Um, Directed, of course, by John Huston. Yeah, it's, this, is a, this is a great film. I love this film. Uh, 
So excited to talk about it. Also, we got a recommendation to view this film from uh, my friend and colleague, Quinn. So thanks to Quinn for uh, suggesting this one previously. I uh, hope we do it justice. And uh, yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's talk about this. So what, when I, I remember watching this as a kid and being like, oh, this is this is good shit. When when did you first see this film? Uh, I was a Borgout firm as a kid. I was <laughs> <laughs> Kevin's so excited to talk to it, talk about this. He forgot how to speak English. Yes, I was actually Tokyo Joe as a young man. Uh, I was a Borgout. I mean, were fan. you like speaking Welsh there or something? <laughs> what is that? I was a Borgart fan as a kid, so I watched a lot of Bogart movies when they came on television back then. How did you become a Bogart fan as a kid? Were you just, like, sitting around with your Rat Pack and, like... Because <laughs> Bogart was the original Rat Pack. Yeah. Uh, I think I was also uh, a Woody Allen fan as a child. Ooh. And Creepy kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Woody Allen wrote the play, which was made into a film, Played Against Sam where uh, Woody Allen receives romantic and life advice from the ghost of Humphrey Bogart. Okay, so then that, so your your Allen fandom springboarded you into a Bogart fandom. And then, and then it's odd, that seems to happen to you a lot, like your Cole Porter fandom springboarded you into a Frank Sinatra fandom. Yes, I, I, I just uh, am like a, a, a feather on a breeze you going really from are. one uh, pop culture thing to another. One big strong man in pop culture to another. <laughs> A candle in the wind. <laughs> Never knowing who to turn to when the rain sets in. <laughs> I wish I'd known you, but I was just a kid. My candle burned out long before, <laughs> but my legend never did. <laughs> You're so conceited. <laughs> I don't know how we went from you being the candle in the wind to me being the candle in the wind, but I resent the implication. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but yeah, no, I I think uh, well now we like Humphrey Bogart because you know we can point to his relationship with Lauren Bacall when we try to normalize our age gap. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we have a bit of an age gap, and so do they, but just a little bit of an age gap. Hey, we, well, you might be unsettled by our age gap, but look at these two attractive people that everyone loves. They too had an age gap. <laughs> it was a similar age gap. But I met you when I was lore- older than Lauren Bacall when she met. Humphrey Bogart, so we got to start later. So it's less creepy. <laughs> but we do work together, and I, I plan to die tragically young, leaving you a widow for decades. Are you going to force me to uh, stop acting or stop d- doing work? <laughs> You're just going to take it from here. <laughs> That's what we're modeling the relationship on. <laughs> Am I going to get together with Frank Sinatra and then have him break up with me over a dumb misunderstanding? <laughs> I've got some bad news for you. <laughs> oh, no. Frank Sinatra passed away long oh, ago. Oh, no. It was a sad... Do you remember where you were when you got the news of Sinatra's death? I think I was either being born or, like, what was it, 94? 98. Oh, well, then I was four years old. I was just kicking it back, watching Scooby-Doo. So was it a life-changing uh, news? I, I was very sad. I wouldn't have known. I, I wouldn't have known, Frank. I mean, my, my big... My big musical interests at that point were the Disney CD we had. <laughs> so you weren't very sophisticated. You were just a toddling child. I was a child enjoying my fucking life, thank you. Not all of us can be weird, tragic four-year-olds who want to read about Watergate and be part of the Rat Pack. So I, uh, he passed away, uh, the news hit the East Coast, you know, late night, early morning, and... For some reason, everybody I know decides to start calling me because they. Kevin loves Frank Sinatra. I want to be the one to break his heart. <laughs> so I start getting calls like three, four, five in the morning from people. Uh, my phone, and then the rest of the day, you know, I, I went out to do something. I come home, my answering machine, which we had back in those days, was completely filled up with people saying, "Kevin, I don't know if you've heard, Frank Sinatra has died." People gloating. People are monsters. You'll never meet Frank Sinatra now. <laughs> I've made sure of that. <laughs> so if you knew somebody admired someone who died, would you like want to call them and break the news like at 4 a.m.? 
uh, not no. Uh, I'd probably be like, oh, did you see this person died? That sucks. You know, like I'll get in a, in a DM or like a. Text. We didn't have DMs back in that day. Well, it was in more innocent time. Smoke signals, I guess. <laughs> it was a more innocent time. Oh yeah, so innocent. We, we didn't have your Twitters, your TikToks. I was your worried. Facebook. Stevie Nicks was trending on Twitter today. I, she's a singer that I enjoy, and I was like, oh shit. And then she's fine. She's just trending. That's the problem with social media nowadays. Anytime someone starts trending, you're like, they either got canceled or now I sound like an old person. But you know what I mean? You have that moment. You're like, and then it always like, so, like oftentimes it turns out to be totally innocuous. And you're like, I get, you know, just kind of primed for death for some of these people, I guess. So you're saying you're primed for Stevie Nicks to die. I just don't want, I mean, she's great. I love, I love, you know, Fleetwood Mac. I'm, I'm a basic white woman. I I'm, I'm enjoy that kind of vibe. And so why was she trending today? People just enjoy her music. <laughs> what a scoop. People having a good time. They're vibing with some uh, dreams or something. I don't know. <laughs> so the fact that people like Fleetwood Mac has gone viral. I know. It's a, it's a bit breaking news. <laughs> I wonder why you were running around in such a commotion. You went to file a front page story. People like Fleetwood Mac. I know right on the music beat. It's a pretty big story. Uh, I was calling my editor. Get me New York. <laughs> so do you think if like Stevie Nicks died, your friends would be calling you and waking you up? I don't think so. But I think, I mean, like my friends who I share, you know, enjoyment, it'd be like, oh, that sucks. You know, but I don't, I think the impulse to call you really says something about how everyone thought of you back then. Now, what does that mean? Let's I unpack that. Like, I want to see how this nut reacts. <laughs> What are we doing? What does he do when we take away the only thing he has going for him? Well, also, at the time, uh, I lived with a woman who was not you. You, you were <laughs> well, four. Well, yeah, because I was four. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This woman also was not very happy to get all these phone calls in the middle of the night. We can cut this if you want, but wasn't that the day that you guys broke up? <laughs> <laughs> that was unrelated. <laughs> Frank Sinatra's dead, honey. I, I, it's not worth it anymore. I think we broke up a, a, a couple of days later. You, well, at the, well, a while back you told me that that was the same day you basically decided to break up. We basically decided to break up. It wasn't formalized for a... What, what, what was there, a bureaucratic snag? <laughs> You've never broken up with anybody. It's a time-consuming, lengthy process. It's Kafka-esque. Jesus. Uh, what, a, what are we talking about? <laughs> we're given one of the great movies. Of the talking 40s, about my romantic. And we're talking about your fuck up romantic and me uh, looking on Twitter about Stevie Nicks. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. So I guess let's get into the plot. Okay. Okay. Are you ready for that? Sure. Going to be okay? Not going to be a bunch of people calling you? <laughs> worried? I got similar calls for some... I, I got one call when Jimmy Stewart died. What? I don't get that. You're not a... You're not a Jimmy Stewart mega fan. No. So why did people do that? They just assume, oh, every old guy in Hollywood, Kevin's going to flip a shit. I don't know. It, it came at an inconvenient time. And uh, why don't we just move on? No, I want to know. <laughs> Who was it? I was having uh, a romantic, you know, this girl I was living with? Yes. We were sharing a romantic moment, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and we get a call, which is picked up by the answering machine at a critical moment during this romantic interlude. And it's a crying friend of mine bemoaning the fact that Jimmy Stewart has died, and she's hysterical, and it kind of spoiled the mood. 
I think she just had a crush on you and she was going to take any advantage to, you know, insert so you, herself. So, so you think she somehow sensed that I was trying to insert myself into something and then she inserted herself into something. It's a women's intuition. Mm. Is that a superpower women have? If they're interested in a man, they know when he's with another well, woman? Well, I just, you know, you're going to take every opportunity you can to just be like, you know, hey, I'm here. Thinking about, crying about Jimmy Stewart. So I think it, was, it wasn't the... I'm available, fellas. <laughs> so I'm saying, hey, she's pretty sensitive. And she likes old-time Hollywood, too. Yeah, basically. Men, such idiots. She also came over and insinuated herself when uh, Princess Diana died. But we digress. There you go. She, she was just, she was actually a serial killer picking off all these uh, famous folks to uh, get closer to you. So you're, you're saying that the that she killed Princess Diana. <laughs> Is that what we've I'm, I'm not to? saying she literally did. Maybe it wasn't supposed to go that far. <laughs> nah, nah, the British royal family killed Princess Diana. Um. <laughs> Jesus. Everyone knows that. <laughs> so what? How does this movie? <laughs> Kevin, Kevin's beside himself. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. <laughs> um, what? <laughs> so we get a uh, we get like a kind of a good. So so the the classic backstory, I guess, is the movie's been made. Before, yeah, hasn't really been made well before. First I, I one don't... was okay, as we discussed. It was okay. It had some good points, but it was pretty boring. And then the second one sucked because they did it as a comedy that was totally unfunny, just a disaster. This may be apocryphal, but the 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 story passed around is that uh, John Huston, who directed the film and also uh, wrote it is that he gave a copy of the novel to his secretary and said, retype this, but type it in a script format, thinking that he would then use that as the basis for his script. But then when he got it back, the novel faithfully typed in script format, he basically said, well, I, I just filmed this. It's a very faithful adaptation. There's very little missing from the book in the movie. And frankly, that is a great choice because this is a novel I remember. I remember reading it on the train. Uh, it, it doesn't really have a lot of fat on it as far as I remember. It's pretty lean and mean and just kind of gets to the point. You're not, it's not, there's not some dopey subplot where people are running around. It's just kind of like, let's just move, move the action forward. And so adapting it faithfully actually makes a lot of sense from a film perspective. You know, typically, typically the film adaptation is going to have to cut down a lot of, you know, stuff that's not super relevant to the plot that's in the novel that maybe, you know, adds enjoyment in the novel, but is not going to add enjoyment in the film. But in this case, there's none of that shit. Right. Just get down to it. Exactly. Quick and dirty. That's the way you like it. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> fuck you, you pig. <laughs> In my boxing stance. <laughs> yeah, I wish people could see that. It's pretty intimidating. Drive away our listeners. <laughs> they come for that uh, romantic content about my history. The romantic content about your history? Yeah, about uh, everybody calling me my, my love life. But let's move on. Now you sounds like now it sounds like you're trying to desperately bring it back up. <laughs> no, I, I I I regretted saying it as soon as I said it. Let's talk about your fighting stance. Let's talk about the goddamn film. Okay. Um. So, basically, it opens up with some sort of like title, opening scroll, a la Star Wars, and basically, it's all going to be about a San Francisco detective named Sam Spade, played by Humphrey Bogart. Sam Spade's kind of a, a dirtbag. You know, he's kind of a jerk, right? That's his whole character. And Sam Spade, uh, Sam is, of course, the f first name of Dashiell Hammett. Right, right. Much and less course, cool than Dashiell. And Dashiell also uh, worked as a private detective for a while. He was a Pinkerton, uh, which is cool, but, you know, ominous. Is it? It's cool in the sense it's like, I mean, obviously they were evil because they were strike breakers and they did a lot of organizing against organized labor, but it's kind of like it has a... The influence on the of the Pinkertons on the detective fiction genre is is very interesting, and the history is fascinating. They're not good guys, but they're interesting guys, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I, th I think if I said Anya, you know, I used to break up strikes and harass innocent people, you wouldn't be like fanning yourself. I'm not fanning suddenly... myself. I just said it was cool. I mean, it was like, it's in cool as in interesting, not cool as in morally good and not reprehensible. Uh, this, there was a story that we... we you always compare the Pickerners to Fonzie. Now that's an that's an adaptation. Let's have a movie about the Pinkertons, except they all give off a Fonzie vibe. <laughs> Aren't they trying to make? Isn't Disney trying to make some sort of like movie about the like uh, the lady, the the female Pinkerton? I think her name was like Kate something. Um, with, with like Emily Blunt in it or something like some really like girl boss like yeah girl boss, crushing workers. <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. No, yeah, this is the thing. I sent it to you at the time. Uh, Kate Warren. Um, it's like the real-life version of the, like, hire more women guards meme. Um, Emily Blunt to play groundbreaking detective Kate Warren in a film produced by Dwayne Johnson. Jesus Christ. Is that the most centrist shit you've ever heard? <laughs> Weren't they uh, the, the stars of Jungle Cruise? Yeah, which was, I mean, a movie that I thought was... Perfectly adequate. Perfectly fine. I don't really remember anything, but I remember enjoying it. I remember enjoying even more the who's your couple next to us who would make make little comments during the film and like the wife would be like, Oh no, if there were a bunch of snakes and the, the guy the, the husband at one point the bad guy got killed and he was like, Serves you right <laughs> and I was like, Who are you? So they were basically doing a podcast very similar to this I one. Know, I know. Like, they were doing it in the theater. I, <laughs> our competitors. You and I just slowly turned and nodded at them. Yeah. <laughs> you two are annoying and spouting off your mouths when you shouldn't be. <laughs> game recognizes game. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. So I'm mean, no. I don't think the Pinkertons are cool, as and I want to join them. And they still exist, by the way. Um, but under the same name. Uh, there was some whole thing in the early 2000s when they sued the band Weezer because Weezer released an album titled Pinkerton, uh, which Weezer said was based on a character from the Madame Butterfly opera. But um, the Pinkertons were like, that old dodge. That's us. And then the judge was like, fuck you. They can name whatever they want. So, you know, Popeye's chicken, they say they named that after a character of the Madame Butterfly opera. <laughs> Yeah, everyone's always uh, pulling that out. <laughs> Classic legal trick. You get sued for copyright infringement. Madam Butterfly It's the Weezer pr uh, precedent. There you go, the Weezer <laughs> Weezer, by the way, uh, I guess they started out as your favorite character in the Arkane uh, yeah, shorts. Yeah, that's what they, they... And then the character, the Weezer, you know, somehow just cloned himself and then that's the band <laughs> and i grew up watching the jeffersons and uh the wife on that show nicknamed wheezy she's in it too we don't know exactly how but <laughs> it's all connected um but yeah so they so yeah so i mean anyway that, that is to say hammett based his uh his writings on his own experiences as a, a private detective and therefore kind of often sort of you know, in this case, just kind of leans into like the darkness and kind of amorality of the whole business. It's not, it's not a situation where it's like valiant detective stops a killer. It's very much like everyone's shitty here. They're all running around, but it's very compelling. Yeah, generally his stuff it is kind of dark and grim. Although he also did a, a character that was a little bit less dark and grim. And I understand we're going to be discussing that character in the future, of course, the Thin Man. The Thin Man, that's like the, the light version, right? Because that's sort of based on his longtime relationship, right? Yes. So he's kind of bringing more of his fun, you know, let's get drunk and have fun sort of side to that. And this one's more of like the more realistic. We listened to a podcast recently, Death in the West, where he... Didn't they say that there was some rumors that he was asked to kill some, like, labor organizer yeah. in Montana and stuff? So, like, he had to do a lot of shit. He also became a communist later on, so he, you know, sort of went on the other side of it then. Didn't he go to jail for a while for, like, some shit? Yeah, wasn't it uh, about uh, contempt of Congress or something? Yeah, so, you know, uh, he was sort of, he sort of came around and 
ended up sort of becoming a target for Pinkertons after, you know, after after a while, which is kind of interesting. The worm turned. The worm turned. But, you know, so that all that all is to say, he wasn't just researching this shit. He lived it. And uh, I remember, yeah, I remember liking the Maltese Falcon book. I'm sure some aspects of it didn't age well, but. So did you read the book before you saw the movie? No, I saw the movie and then I read the book. How old were you, roughly? Well, I, I saw the movie when I was probably like 10. And I think I read the book when I was, you know, in my 20s. So fairly recently. Yeah, fairly recently. But I was drinking at that point, so I don't really have a great memory. <laughs> <laughs> Two years sober. Two years sober, woo! Yeah, that's a problem with drinking, guys. Sometimes you, uh, you, you know, maybe drink a beer on a train, and then next thing you know, you finish the Maltese Falcon, and you don't really have a strong recollection of it. So maybe that's due for a reread. Um, so basically, uh, the, the central detective agency in this is, as we mentioned, Sam Spade, who's kind of this asshole detective and his sort of bumbling partner, Miles Archer. And they get a call. They, you know, a a lady comes calling a femme fatale, uh, of this very pretty lady who says her name is Miss Wonderly. (laughs) And actually, weirdly enough, this is how I met Kevin. (laughs) Same, same ruse. No, Miss Wonderly comes in, and she has a very heart-rending request. She's very worried about her sister, who ran off with this man named Floyd Thursby. And uh, she wants them to uh, track Mr. Thursby and her sister. Yes. And Sam Spade's going to do it, because he's all like, hmm. But then Miles Archer kind of sweeps in and is like, I'll do it, toots, ha You know, you saw her first, Sam, but I'm, you know, I spoke up first. And uh, she's played by Mary Astor. And wasn't Mary Astor involved in a notorious sex scandal involving uh, the playwright George Kaufman? Tell me more about this. What didn't she keep a diary about her sexual relations with him that was somehow uh, disseminated to the press? It wasn't scandalous. Am I making this up? You may be because I've never heard of this, but I don't. I don't make it my business to know about sordid old Hollywood tales. That seems much more like a Greenlee. Uh... You were a Greenlee too, sister. I remember when I was a kid watching this thinking all the names were cool, like Miles Archer and Sam Spade and Floyd Thursby and Miss Wonderly. I remember thinking, oh, those are fun names. So there, is, there was a diary about her sexual relationship with George Kaufman. It came up in a custody case. Excerpts, scandalous excerpts from it appeared in the papers. Uh, some of those may have been fabricated. But she definitely had an affair with George S. Kaufman, which she wrote about in, in her diary. God forbid a woman enjoys having sex and writes about it. What that's a nightmare. All, that's all you do. You stay up late at night writing about... And disseminating my sex life to the press, yes. Under different pen names. Under different... It's fascinating. If you don't uh, cease this line of questioning, counselor, you might not have much of a sex life left. <laughs> <laughs> but she gives a very interesting performance. She's kind of cold and passionate and calculating. There's a lot of contrasts. Yeah, I like her, especially at the, well, we'll talk about it more, but at the end, she just almost gives off this very, very tired She's very tired of it all. She's a person who's like, as you'll see in the film, she just kind of keeps on putting out these versions of herself that aren't aren't necessarily. And and we recently saw her in another film, which she gave a very different kind of performance. She was great. That was, uh, what was it called? Palm Uh, Beach Story. Palm Beach Story, uh, which was directed by. Written and directed by the great Preston Sturgis. That was a very fun film. And she was so fun in that. She was just like, she kind of stole the movie at the end a little bit. Because she was just so energetic and fun. So, yeah, she's great. Um, in terms of, yeah, in terms of this, so she gives this story. And as you probably have guessed, if you know anything about detective fiction or if you've, you know, heard of the Maltese Falcon at all before, you probably remember that, like, Miles Archer gets shot immediately. Like, literally, it's it very jarring because, like, almost, like, I feel like they just kind of cut to him smiling and then suddenly gets shot. <laughs> and... And then we find out that Sam has been sleeping with this guy's wife. Yeah, what an asshole. He's been cucking his partner. Yeah. 
That's and where it, Gladys George comes in. <laughs> and it's not like there's some sort of deep emotional connection to them. Not He's her one true love or anything like that. He doesn't seem to have much respect for her. Or his partner. Doesn't seem to be a nice fella in many respects. He's not a nice fella. This is not a... Uh... This is not a Marlowe, who who Humphrey Bogart also played. Um, Philip Marlowe, created by uh, Raymond Chandler, who's who's more of a, a gentleman. You know, who's who has who's rough. He has a rough. code. He's rough around the edges, but he he's he has a code that he lives by. He's sort of like a you know, uh, Chandler wrote about detectives as sort of being like knights errant in modern day society. And Chandler, of course, yeah. was not a detective himself. No. <laughs> So obviously he's coming to things with maybe a more literary bent, maybe a more, uh, he was a, wasn't he an oil executive? I believe he was. Yeah. So he's kind of and guy he, who would hire Pinkertons. And he was in an age gap relationship. Oh my God. It all comes. I mean, this is the patterns here. <laughs> After his wife died, he fell into an alcoholic, uh, stupor and didn't really publish anything worthwhile again, if I remember correctly. Yikes. What are you looking at me meaningfully for? <laughs> That's Kevin Kevin's way of saying I, I this is as good as it gets, Toots. <laughs> when I croak, it's all downhill for you. You're off the greenly gravy train. <laughs> um, yeah, it is kind of interesting that the person who actually did the job that they're describing was way more cynical about it. And the guy who is like, you know, I'm sure there's some good detectives out there that, you know, they're trying their best. It's a dirty job, but you know, there's some this morality, and the other guy's like, nah, these guys are all assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, so one thing I love about this film that I wanted to talk about here, cause you kind of see it for immediately. There's such like moody lighting. I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's like a film. It's not like the third man where you're like almost where it's like kind of just like really calling attention to all its cool shots and kind of shadows and darkness in the same way. In this case, it's a little bit more, you know, understated. But I just, just the black and white and it, 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 everything's so moody and everyone just, it just has this vibe that I really like. I don't even know, I'm not, I'm not educated enough about, you know, film construction or any of that stuff to really speak to it that specifically. But I just love the vibe that this film puts out. It's so moody and kind of, it feels like a big film. It feels like expansive and like this darkness creeping in on all the edges. Yeah, it has a terrific mood. And wasn't this actually Houston's first film as a director? Oh, wow. Knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's terrific. I just love it. it. It sets you in such a good mood. And even though I've seen this film a number of times, so it's like I know the story. I mean, the twist isn't going to do anything for me now. But I still just enjoy kind of steeping in that noir mood. You know, and it just it's very effective. And the storytelling is very effective. So anyways, now the, the the dead bodies continue to drop. Now Floyd Thursby, the guy that Archer was supposed to tail, also gets shot. And now, of course, Humphrey Bogart, Mr. Sam Spade, is a suspect in the eyes of the police because they think, oh, he probably was trying to avenge his partner. So now he's kind of in it, in whatever this is, you know. And, uh, you know, throughout this Humphrey Bogart, you know, in previous iterations... You know, it would be like Sam Spade's like a rogue and like he's kind of a, you know, oh, he's he kind of played him more over the top in past versions. But in this, I like how he, he's just kind of quietly sinister. Like he does not seem like a good guy. You know, he's just kind of like this menacing kind of vibe from him. You don't you don't think like, oh, this guy's trying his best. He's just a good guy. He's like he's very he's able to blend into the ensuing plot, which is filled with all these lying sneaky shitty people because he's one of them yes at this point in his career hadn't bogart mainly played bad guys and he eventually transitioned into more romantic type heroes but this this character he seems more of a bad guy than a romantic type hero he's compelling and you're in whatever in in, in, in however as much you can root for him you're rooting for him because you want to see him unravel the mystery but it's not from a perspective of like 
what a guy, you know, Nick and Nora Charles, they're great. They're going to save the day. This is much more of a, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to, like, piss this guy off. Yes, I'm not sure if he's really that much morally superior to the other characters. He's not. He's definitely not. And also, the one, the one, like, he's pretty much kind of sinister with who everyone he interacts with, except maybe his secretary, who he seems close to. But everyone else, it's just kind of like he's either dismissive of them or he's purposely antagonizing them. Or he's uh, lying to them, or you know, this is, he has an angle with everybody. It almost seems like. But I, I like, I like how, I like how he, even when he, even though a lot of the performance is kind of quieter than other iterations, he always seems close to either being angry or doing something kind of shady. Yeah, that that never seems far away. You never forget that because he just something about the way he's like looking at people. You're just like, uh oh. What's this guy going to do? <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the kind of plot gets set in motion then when uh, he reconnects with Miss Wonderly. She admits that she lied about the sister story uh, and basically begs him for help. She's kind of this damsel in distress now. She says the bad people are after her. She needs his help. She needs his protection. But she's not really uh, giving him many answers as to what her agenda is what exactly the fuck's going on. And soon it becomes apparent that she's not the only one mixed up in this business. So is uh, Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre playing Mr. Cairo. Mr. Joel Cairo. I think he's, in the book at least, I think it's more explicit that he's supposed to be gay or something. There's some uh, homosexual subtext to this. Yeah, there is. Uh, someone uh, later on uh, is referred to as a gunzel, and that uh, is usually, or that's often slang for a young man who is kept by an older man for the older man's sexual pleasures. Yeah, which, you know, I think is probably that one aspect maybe hasn't aged well because it feels like all the gay people in this are bad, <laughs> or people who are coded as queer. Um but I guess, yeah. Probably, I think it was a little bit more explicit in the book, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, he's this kind of, again, sinister character showing up. He sort of plays it a bit effeminate, you know, uh, and he, he, he basically also wants Spade to cooperate with him or kind of basically uh, come to an understanding, as he puts it. Then he kind of links up with Wonderly as well. So there's a lot of, like, people basically showing up being like, you know, you need to give me the information, and him being like, I don't know, and then, like, and then there's a scuffle, or they have to do a second meeting. It's like a... it, it when, you, when you talk about it, it sounds boring, because it sounds like it's just a series of meetings, like you're on some, like, group project at work, and people are just kind of doing that, but it's... it's yeah, it almost seems a mistake to talk too much about the plot because yeah. this is this movie is less about the actual plot than it is about how the story is told and the writing and the performances. That's so right. That's so right. It's like neon drenched, even though it's black and white. Like you can see the neon signs flickering outside a lot. It just gives this very uh, dark, moody vibe. The performances are good. Uh the actual plot is basically just a bunch of people continually double-crossing each other and lying to each other in order to get something they feel has great worth. And at some point in the movie, like everyone seems willing to sacrifice someone else in order to get this. Even people they claim to love or have strong feelings for. Yes. One point a character says, oh, this other character is like a son to me. I, I love him so much. And he's willing to sacrifice that character. And, of course, in the uh, final climactic scene, uh, Bogart uh, sacrifices someone that he claims to love. Yeah, everybody, everybody's just... Now, I guess, should we just kind of reveal the ending? Because I think you summed it up pretty good. I mean, yeah. I think that's what people need to know. Um Oh, I guess before we talk about that, I want to reveal my little podcast news. <laughs> Set me up. 
So uh, Mary Astor plays a character in this movie, and I'm actually blanking. What was that character's name? Well, her real name is Bridget O'Shaughnessy. But she has some sort of alias, doesn't she? Miss Wonderly. But my big joke in the past was she's Miss Wondery, (laughs) the podcast network. So then while we were watching this, I got into a manic fit and basically wrote out different podcast names for everybody. Hit us. Okay, so... My podcast version of this plot is that uh, Sam Spotify is tasked with investigating a murderous, twisty case for the mysterious Miss Wondery, uh, which uh, is proves fatal for his uh, partner, uh, Miles Audio Boom, <laughs> and also involves the sinister machinations of the ominous fat man, Mr. Gimlet, <laughs> and the twitchy Mr. Cumulus. <laughs> and that's the... And that, and that's the mid-roll falcon. <laughs> I tried very hard to find a podcast jargon word that started with M, and that's the best I could do, so no complaints. <laughs> I looked at podcast terms. Jesus. You went all out. You even Googled. This was what I was doing last night instead of speaking to you. <laughs> when I coldly turned away from you and told you to be gone from my sight. This is what I was doing. So in a way, the Maltese Falcon consumed me, too. And you were willing to betray those you loved most, me. Yeah. All for the sake of the gag, the bit. That's what what it's all about, baby. (laughs) Oh, man. I have a question. You're you're a collector. You're a collector of books. And of women. Oh, my God. (laughs) Shut up. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Contrary to all reason. So you're you're a collector. What um my question for you is like what have you ever gotten involved in the search for a specific object, you know, on eBay or, or whatever that turned into anything anything that you could remotely uh, see becoming a, a Maltese Falcon situation where it's you and a bunch of other uh, shady characters all scrambling to get the same thing and betraying each other along the way. Does that ever happen like at comic book conventions? <laughs> everybody has grail items that they really, really want and look for, and everybody tries to find unique ways to uh, get them. Uh, I remember back in the day when uh, eBay first started up a way to get good prices on things was to look for relatively common misspellings or typos so if someone describes something slightly wrong and you look up the the misspelled word you could find something and get a good deal and i remember doing that sometimes other people would come in and get it snipe it for me at the last moment and i actually ended up connecting with some of the people who outbid me and for a while there was like a small group of us who were on ebay looking for things by taking advantage of the buyers or the sellers rather what were you uh looking for well that's just for uh, (laughs) (laughs) comic books different comic books yes and so i uh, so i met some friends that way I can imagine you somehow getting into some sort of dangerous comic book situation with some, you know, Mr. Gutman figure or something. And, you know, you, you meet people who are dealers and they tell you wild stories about people, celebrities coming in and offering them huge amounts for uh, comic books. Uh, there, there was a, a number of comic book conventions there was a bearded man who was selling comics and he was very annoying and he was very uh, loquacious and he would tell wild stories, one of which was he claimed with absolutely no evidence whatsoever that he was the basis of the comic book guy on The Simpsons. He claimed to be personal friends with Matt Groening. Oh, my God. And so he talked about celebrities would, would go on the show and then they'd be, want to meet him and come to his store and spend money at his store. He 
claimed that he was given an all-expense-paid tri all trip to Japan to appear at a Simpsons convention because people couldn't get enough of the idea of seeing the real comic book guy. Uh, Jesus. I remember one story he told, one of my favorite comic book companies is ACG. Uh, basically, all you need, they, they published several hundred comics, and he claimed that he had not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, but seven complete sets of everything ACG published. And one of my friends said, that's absurd. Can you imagine someone saying, oh, I got to buy this so I can complete my sixth set? So uh, I'm, I'm just rambling. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking this about. This is crazy. I, it sounds like he reminds me of like the kid in my second grade class who told us that he won the yoga or the Gogurt jet thing to go to space or something and then we all believed him and then when we asked him when we were going to get to go on the jet he said uh, another student from our class broke into his garage and tampered with the jet and that it just seems like a bald-faced lie that's crazy but also guys like that are in in a buying situation they can be relatively easy to play because they just have a big ego and this guy was one of those annoying guys who never had prices on his comics. So you'd pull out what you wanted and he would tell you how much he wanted for it. And I had a friend who pulled out some comics and this guy started talking about his experiences on The Simpsons. And my friend said, I, I, don't, I don't care about that. Just tell me the price. And the price was astronomical. And then I go and he says, let me tell you about my experiences on The Simpsons. I said, you know what? I'd love to hear about that. And I acted like I believed him and... I got a terrific deal. <laughs> Just play along with the with the insane person. Jeez, got a nice run of Forbidden Worlds from him. Oh, there you go. I, yeah, it sounds. Yeah, yeah, you would be involved. You would be the more likely person in our relationship, believe it or not, to be involved with a Maltese Falcon situation. Or Falcon, as you say. Now, why do you say that? Well, just because you're a collector. So yeah. you, I could see you becoming crazed enough to go after something like the Falcon, like whatever the comic book equivalent of the Maltese Falcon is. Of course, I was your Maltese Falcon. You were crazed in your pursuit yeah, of me. Yeah, I, I stole you from a Russian general in Istanbul. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's our meat cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't. I mean, because that's my thing. Like, my problem is I'll be like, that's really cool. And then they'll be like, it's $200. And I'll be like, never mind. Like, <laughs> yeah, you don't care enough no. for anything. If there's the slightest obstacle, you say, that's wonderful. And so, you know, you'd have to uh, pay a dollar for it. Say, ah, it's not worth it. Or you might say, I'm, I'm moral enough to not want to kill or uh, ruin anybody's life over an object. There's, that's th there's that take, too. <laughs> Oh, that's really wonderful. You have to go across the street and pick it up. Ah, who has the time? I'm all about uh, same-day shipping. Easy fulfillment. That's my. That's my. That's what I write about. So I don't want to have to go to fucking Istanbul or go to China or something to get on a ship and then have the ship guy show up at my fucking doorstep having been shot to death and drop my package. That's terrible service. Actually, you would love it if that happened. You would think that was so cool. Yeah, I want fulfillment employees to die in the course of delivering me my items. That's I'm glad what, you admit that's it. That's what I You want. admit it freely. That's dead X. <laughs> no, I don't so, so, want so, so that. You tell, tell me, is there anything that you would go to Istanbul for? Is there anything you care about that much? You. No. Maybe Lanny if she somehow got that's out. That's our dog. Yeah. She's a dumbass. She would somehow end up on a cargo freighter and end up in fucking Istanbul. And then we'd have to go get her. I could see that. She's such a doofus. And she just likes to go out and meet new people and would totally... Oh, God. Now I'm getting stressed out thinking about this. Is there anyone... Is there anything you'd go to Istanbul for that's not a person or a dog? Like an object? See, my feeling is all these people admitted that the uh, the ob the uh, Maltese Falcon, which is, you know, basically in the course of the plot, revealed to be a uh, lacquered over uh, falcon-shaped uh, statuette that's encrusted with jewels that the, the Knights of Malta made for the King of Spain, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's MacGuffin. Um, blah, 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 blah. It's, just, it's the thing that incites the plot. But they uh, basically... Uh, 
and so they're all crazed about that. But they all admit that basically it owned it was be- first belonged to the king of Spain, then it belonged to some pirate, then it belonged to like this Russian general. Previously, it belonged to some uh, like Greek guy who found it and owned like a pawn shop or something. And it's like I I don't think I would. I think if it was something like that, I'd be like, well, I guess it belongs to those people. I don't, I don't think I'd be like, it's mine. Like I, I, I would, cause then I would like, if someone immediately was like, no, that's mine. I'd be like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> like, I'm saying anything at all. N- if you could get clear title to it, what would you go to Istanbul for? For the cover of Sad Sack number one, the original art. Oh God. Um, maybe, maybe like, un. Previously unknown documents associated with Colonial Jamestown. So you do have something. Yeah. But I wouldn't want to keep that. I would want to... It belongs in a museum. (laughs) You learned that from uh, Indiana. Yeah. So, you know, that... And also, I mean, like, yeah, I just, I don't... I I would, I would get to... I, I, the Catholic guilt would just start eating away at me if I was really going hard after something like the Maltese Falcon. And I'd be like, why don't I just get a job and, like, I don't know, like, earn money that way? <laughs> like, how do all these people, all these people, so Miss Wonderly, Mr. Cairo, Mr. Gutman, uh, until he died, Mr. Thursby, are all just running around, spending all this money, trying to find this goddamn thing. Where do they get the money from? That's my question. Yeah, you were like uh, Archie Bunker. You were yelling at the screen of these characters, get a job. I I don't understand how they have the means to do this. If they're dishonest people with no sense of morals or ethics, can't we assume they probably uh, support themselves through dishonest means? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And does it matter? I mean, are you saying what you want now is a Maltese Falcon no, prequel solo no. style where we explain how all these characters came to be and how they support themselves? No, that sounds terrible. I just that's I, what you were calling for. That's, I don't that's want an that. awful idea you had. <laughs> Fuck you. No one wants that. Oh my god. I remember you called up Lucasfilm and said, "What we really need is an explanation of Han Solo's name." I did not. <gasps> I did not say that. I did not do that. That's insane. I don't I don't like that. It's gotten to the point where I mean like the exposition in some of these films is just like who the fuck cares to tell a story. But you're complaining there wasn't enough exposition in this. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm just commenting on it in a light and joking manner. <laughs> As is your one. But I guess the point is it's not about the money for these people. It's about the uh, you know, about the you know what it means to have the falcon because it's interesting gutman basically makes clear that as soon as he gets it he'll sell it so then what's the point it's uh yeah i mean i mean are there any do we have any detractions about this film i anything negative to say it's a great film it's a great film Y'all should watch it if you haven't, or if you watched a long time ago and don't remember it, watch it again. It's very good. Um, very enjoyable. It's just, I like how lean it is. It's it's not, it's twisty. It keeps you, keeps you guessing, but everything about it just kind of keeps things interesting and keeps things moving. So it's not like dead space where you're just like, oh, get onto the interesting part. So the closest thing to an ethical character is Effie. Yeah, Effie's ethical. Effie is She's the, the secretary. secretary. Yeah, she... She basically is a nice girl with a nice attitude, uh, comes to work, does her job. Sam Spade asks her to do something. She never does anything that's, like, super unethical. And, and basically, you know, she even uh, volunteers to take in Miss Wonderly when she needs to hide somewhere. Of course, Miss Wonderly doesn't take up her up on that, and we'll explain the ending in a minute. But, uh, you know, Effie's just a nice gal. I mean, the police kind of are coming into it. They're also like looking into the murders, but they, they don't, they just seem kind of sour faced and they just show up and scowl <laughs> at Sam Spade. So, um, shall we, shall we just disc- discuss the, uh, the climactic, uh, conclusion. So basically what happens is there is yet another meeting now involving, uh, Mr. Mr. Gutman, uh, the kind of the fat man who's, uh, 
you know, offers Sam Spade massive riches for the bird, Mr. Cairo and uh, Miss Wonderly, and also Mr. Gutman's uh, kind of, like, lackey guy. Uh, his Gunzel. His Gunzel, uh, Wilbur. Elisha Cook Jr. And uh, it's basically like a kind of a standoff. They're all kind of like, you know, and, and Sam Spade at this point has received the bird from the captain of a ship that brought it over who immediately died upon delivering it. That's why I was joking about Dead X. And he basically is like, I'll give it to whoever can make me the best offer almost. And they go around and they decide that basically Sam Spade is like the only payment I need, you know, in addition to the money is we need to have a fall guy. So uh, they pick, they pick the, the, you know, the, the kid essentially to be the fall guy. And, you know, there's this whole like, oh, you know, well, he's my son, uh, blah, 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 whatever. So at the end, Sam Spade calls the police on all these people. So they're all going to get arrested for these murders and this this chaos. It also turns out that the uh, the bird, the falcon, is is a fake. They try to cut into it and carve it and get the lacquer off, and it's just it's just it's just a piece of shit. So they're they're all kind of like kind of wailing and really upset at first, and and then they kind of all calm down and are like, okay, well, back to the back to the drawing board. So it kind of shows like the mania. I, I joked that this was this this movie is uh, the sunk cost fallacy. You know, the film because it's very much like these people have all kind of wrecked their lives looking for this bird, but they're, even with this devastating setback, they, they're not going to turn back now because they've already gone this far, essentially. And at the end, after Sam Spade sort of has cleared it up and he's alone with Miss Wonderly, you know, in in a sort of traditional detective movie, you know, he and her might get together. Like, he's reformed her, and so now they could have a relationship, and, like, he gets the girl at the end. But in this, he turns to her and basically reveals that he knows that she shot his partner, Miles. And he's going to turn her in. So she's crying and being like, don't turn me in, don't don't you love me, all this stuff. Because they've had a, a romantic relationship over the course of this film. And he's basically like, gives her a bunch of reasons. Some of them sounded compelling, some of them sounded very uncompelling. And it's kind of like... Maybe I'll have some bad nights, but you know, I gotta do this. Uh, and so the power of the scene, we need to believe, I think, that he does love her. Do you believe Sam Spade is capable of love or that he feels love for this woman? I think that, I think neither of them are maybe capable of an unselfish love. But I think as far as they can love, they can, they love each other, yes. Because I don't think it's that... I don't think he loves the kind of schoolgirl act that she was putting on in the beginning. I think he, they recognize each other as similar. Game sees game. Game sees game. And that, as you and I know, you know, that's, that's quite compelling when you meet someone else who's very like you and maybe understands you in ways that others don't. So I think, again, they're both very, very flawed and bad people, but I think, like, there's a connection there that they that is sincere and you know you could call it love but i think it's one of those things where he i don't think i think maybe some of what you're seeing too is i don't my interpretation is that he never once considered letting her off the hook and that's because he needs to be in control he needs to be he's seen again and again how miss wonderly has used her feminine charm to make men weak and use their weakness against them to basically kill them. So he he doesn't want her to have power over him in the relationship. So he he would never consent to an so he he would never ever agree to this. He gives a whole bunch of bullshit reasons like oh if you kill my partner then it's bad for business I have to solve it because you know it's bad for business like that's just bullshit he he, he does not want her to be to have have it have that over him essentially right. is my interpretation it's a wonderfully acted scene by Bogart and Astor it's terrific makes the movie yeah it, it really makes the movie what do you see in both of their performances uh There's some anguish in uh, Bogard. 
and some fear. It almost sounds like he's trying to convince himself that this yeah. is the right thing to do. You know? And she's trying everything she can to convince him yeah. not to do it. She's a player who's been playing this entire game. Like, this entire film, she's been playing this game with everybody she meets. You know, doing all these, like, acts to basically compel people to do what she wants. And has been putting on all these different masks. And to me, Mary Astor's performance at the end is like somebody who's been juggling all this shit and is now just exhausted but desperate to keep juggling. You know what I mean? Like, but you could see where it's starting to kind of fray. Right. And maybe the real person is sort of coming out a little bit. So, yeah, I really, I really liked it. I thought it was, yeah, I think it's a terrific scene. I love both their performances, and I just love the downer ending. And it's like, the real treasure was the love we found along the way, <laughs> except we can't have that. <laughs> I mean, so many, and like then this like last scene is her getting closed into this elevator that looks like bars on her face, and then him just going down the stairs. And it's like, oh, good. Good shit. And I liked how it was set up, because earlier, Gutman is willing to betray someone who's like a son to him. And then the end, we see Spade uh, make a similar uh, betrayal, for lack of a better word. But is it is it a betrayal? Is it a betrayal because she was never real with him, and she did kill his partner? Mm. And he's not betraying her. He's not giving her over so he can get the bird. The bird never existed. It was all for nothing. Do you believe the bird never existed, or this was just a fake? Is there a real bird and this is the fake bird? He says it's the stuff that dreams are made of, so I don't know. Maybe it doesn't maybe maybe it existed at a time and it doesn't anymore. Or maybe the, I guess that's just the the I mean it's it's a, it's a mystery. But it almost seems like one of those things like why wouldn't, you know, if it was it if it was originally captured by pirates, you know, maybe they would have pried off the jewels and melted down the gold yeah centuries ago yeah um but yeah so is is he really is he betraying her or is he holding her accountable for betraying him what do you think i don't know i guess he's betraying her in a way but seems a little bit more clean than like basically selling out your lover for for the bird mm-hmm He's he's selling out his lover because he uh, he doesn't want to live with the insecurity of being vulnerable. You know, he he would be vulnerable to her essentially. Yes. And that's a fair concern, given that you know she killed Miles, and then she got Thursday, Thursday. Kill, yeah, yeah, got him killed, got got some other dude killed, you know. That's just what we know about. Who knows what, what happened before she came to San Francisco? I mean, you forgave me for having all my old boyfriends get killed in the course of some mysterious uh, caper. <laughs> <laughs> you decided you'd be willing to live with that. Because uh, allowing yourself to be vulnerable in that way is part of every relationship. So that's why I welcomed uh, Anya Murderous with open arms. <laughs> it just seems like it, it kind of is kind of interesting because it's like, you know, it's like, it is kind of like being vulnerable with each other is what makes a relationship. And it's like, that's, it's, it's, it's like an extreme version of that. Yeah. You know, you're basically leaving yourself open for the other person to potentially hurt very badly. Yes. In this case, it might actually be permanently like get killed. But, uh, so it's like, yeah, they, they love each other, but they can't be together because there's no trust that comes that needs to come along with that vulnerability. Yeah. At least in this movie, I think he, yeah, I think he does love her, and that's just based on Bogart's performance. You could really write, you could read it, you could read into it either way. I think, and I like that ambiguity. That's noir. So why do you suppose a man like Spade ever went into business with a man like Archer? Well, I mean, let's think about what we know about him. He's kind of, he likes to be in control, right? If your partner is kind of this 
bumbling idiot, you're going to be the man calling the shots pretty much. I guess that's kind of why I went into business with you. Oh, my. Now, that's a fine thing to say to me. Walk right into that one. You're such a fucking asshole. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin, there's two of us in this relationship, and only one of us could be aptly described as bumbling, and it is not me. <laughs> one of the first days I knew this man, we went to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and this gentleman, this man in front of me who I'm podcasting with right now, who I agreed to marry... Somehow managed to trip into the car petting zoo. Just think about that image for a minute. <laughs> and then tell me who's the bumbler. <laughs> but yeah, I think he's like, he wants to be, he wants to be in control. So sometimes if somebody's like insecure or very desperate to be in control, they might partner up with someone who's more passive or submissive or... Uh, fucked up in a way that allows them to be the one really calling the shots. And you could almost even see it in that, like, in that, like, when in the beginning when Spade and, and Archer are kind of, you know, like, playfully arguing, like, oh, who's going to tell Miss Wonderly? She's very pretty. We want to look at her. Ha, pretty girl. You know, Miles sort of wins out and is like, I'm going to go trailer. And, then, and you know, Spade's kind of like, okay. But you know who's in charge. It's like he maybe, like, lets Miles do something small like this, but in the background, he's fucking Miles's wife. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, we know who's in charge. Yeah, he makes a big deal out of saying, you know, when your partner gets killed, you're supposed to do something about it because that's the thing you're supposed to do. But, you know, also, you're not supposed to fuck your partner's wife. Yeah, it almost seems like he's... He, that seems like one of the bad excuses where, you know, you don't feel like he really cared about Miles. Or or it, maybe if he did, this is some sort of, like, guilt trip reaction of, like, oh, my God, I really was horrible to this guy, and now I should avenge him. Doesn't seem especially broken up by Miles' death. No. I, I think it's really the, the power thing. Like, she would have power over him because she would be willing to potentially kill him if it came to it. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, you shouldn't be in a relationship with anybody like that, so I don't blame him. <laughs> Are we ready to for your uh, five star final take? Your pithy take? Yeah. You look up Falcon idioms. Oh, I don't have to look that hard. I'd say that the 1941 version of the Maltese Falcon is the stuff that dreams are made of. Thanks for listening this week. I'd like to give a special thanks to Kevin T. Greenley, who's no relation to me. He's the guy that composed the great music for this podcast, and you can find him on the web at kevintg.com. You can follow us on Twitter at mystery to me. That's mystery underscore two underscore me underscore. And at mystery to me podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always send us recommendations and feedback of any kind at mystery to me podcast at gmail.com. We're not teens setting up Hotmail accounts in the early 2000s, so all of those spell out two as T-O.